How do you tell the story of such a vast and terrible war in so few words? Hundreds of books and memoirs have been written on the topic, and millions of deeds, heroic and cowardly, brilliant and foolhardy, took place. But this is the same as in every war. Zoom in far enough, and you get the fullest range of human experience in wartime. Terror and exhilaration among the far greater swaths of boredom. Love, hate, death, rebirth, revenge, absolution, and everything in between is all there on display. I will try and tell you some of these stories in the greater context. The context of a war that shaped the world we live in today. This week, I'm going to cover the European and Mediterranean Wars. From Britain's struggle for survival to the invasions of North Africa and Italy, and culminating with the greatest amphibious operation in human history, the landing on the beaches of France on July 6th, 1944, D-Day. World War II, at least in Europe, started when the revived German army invaded Poland on September 1st, 1939, more than two full years before the United States would enter into the war after the Japanese surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. In that autumn of 1939, almost a century ago now, the naval war in Europe began. Unlike in World War I, the German Navy was small when World War II broke out, and the Germans harbored no delusions about wrestling sea control from the British in an epic showdown of battle fleets. But between the end of World War I and 1935, when Adolf Hitler renounced the severe naval limitations of the Versailles Treaty, the German Navy sustained and expanded its submarine-related technical expertise through Dutch shell companies, submarines built for export, and by stockpiling unassembled parts in anticipation for the day when German submarine construction would again resume. After 1935, the German Navy expanded their submarine fleet, which they referred to as U-boats, to asymmetrically counter the insurmountable British conventional fleet lead. Leading the German U-boat effort was Karl Donitz, who commanded a force of 57 U-boats. The first strike of Donitz's U-boats came in October of 1939 against the Royal Navy's great base at Scapa Flow on the northern tip of Scotland. Cruising silently and darkly, low in the water, past the harbor defenses under only the ghostly green glow of the northern lights, and into the inner harbor, a dark shape stopped only 4,000 yards from the World War I-era British battleship HMS Royal Oak. Firing a salvo of four torpedoes at point-blank range, one jammed, two somehow missed, and the fourth managed to hit the Royal Oak's anchor cable without damaging the battleship or raising the British alarm. The German submarine turned around and fired again at the Royal Oak with its stern torpedo tube, and again, missed. The U-boat's commander, undeterred and still undetected, retreated away from the Royal Oak to reload again before returning an hour later to unleash another volley of three torpedoes, this time to effect. Three blasts rocked the Royal Oak. Water and pieces of the ship's hull flew over a hundred feet in the air, followed by flames and black smoke as the giant ship listed further and further to starboard, before sinking completely below the surface, just 13 minutes after the first explosion, with the loss of over 800 souls. Searchlights snapped on and destroyers pulled up their anchors to search and give chase, but Lieutenant Preen and U-47 escaped the harbor under cover of dark and after one close call with British patrol boats equipped with an early form of sonar and depth charges, the next day made their way home to Germany as some of the first naval heroes of the war. The rest of the German U-boat fleet had not been idle during these first few weeks of war either. The Germans were sinking merchant ships at the rate of 10 a week, and had sunk one of the Royal Navy's five aircraft carriers just two weeks into the war. But the destruction of the Royal Oak and the Royal Navy's inner sanctum had a unique psychological impact on the Royal Navy and the British public. But as suspicious a start as sinking a British battleship and aircraft carrier was, Donitz believed that the true target of his submarine force had to be the massive merchant fleet, which kept the British public fed 
and her factory supplied with raw materials. To do this, the German fleet was far under strength and the flaws in German torpedo technology had been revealed, which despite numerous redesigns, would continue to haunt the German Navy throughout the war. The German Navy took the fight to the British merchant fleet on the surface as well, using a pair of heavily armed and fast cruisers known as Panzerschleifen, or pocket battleships. The German surface fleet raided the Atlantic, sinking British merchantmen left and right, and using the speed of these very fast ships to evade the ships sent in pursuit. If you listen to episode number six on the Civil War, and remember the raids of the CSS Alabama against Union shipping, the concept here is essentially the same. To counter this new threat, the British Admiralty created six cruiser hunter-killer groups to seek out and destroy the German pocket battleships. This, of course, filled the second half of the German objective for the pocket battleships, of forcing the British to deploy a completely disproportionate number of ships far afield and search for a few and relatively inexpensive German assets. In the end, the most successful of the German raiders, the Graf Spee, sank nine merchant vessels between September and December of 1939 before being trapped by one of the British hunter-killer groups off the coast of South America and scuttled to avoid capture by the British. The Graf Spee's sister ship, the Admiral Scheer, would make a successful cruise in late 1940, but it quickly became pretty clear that resources would be better spent on submarines if the goal was to devastate British shipping. The relatively ineffective performance decisively tipped Hitler's opinion toward using submarine warfare against British shipping, and the concept of surface raiders was pretty much abandoned by the Germans. The next phase of the European war emerged on the northern front of Norway. For Germany, securing Norway was a strategic play which would allow their submarines easier, closer, and safer access to their hunting grounds around the British Isles and secure a supply of iron ore for their ravenous German war machine. The British were simultaneously contemplating their own offensive action against neutral Norway to, not, to deny Germany these same advantages. The Germans managed to strike first with a simultaneous invasion of Denmark and Norway. The invasion of Denmark took four hours against a symbolic defense leaving the Germans poised for an all-out naval gamble against the Norwegians. The Navy planning for the invasion of Norway was complex and daring. German warships set off independently. German warships set off independently, with soldiers crowded into every passageway and deck, and arrived at key ports simultaneously. German supply ships stealthily prepositioned themselves inside of Norwegian fjords and ports, while the German Navy's two battle cruisers sallied forth into the Norwegian Sea as a decoy. The German invasion fleet got underway just as a British force sent to mine neutral Norway's harbors sailed into the North Sea. Without radar, and the typically terrible visibility of the North Sea beset with snowstorms and heavy fog, meant that the fighting was confused and sporadic. The British and Norwegians did manage to sink or badly damage a number of German warships, but the German goal was accomplished boots on the ground in Norway. Compared to the intricately planned German invasion, the British counter-invasion of Norway was thrown together in a matter of days with whatever units and supplies could be loaded onto ships first. Under the continued bombing of the Luftwaffe, which claimed five more warships, the Royal Navy landed British, French, and Polish exile soldiers ashore and began to encircle their German counterparts. With the Norwegian campaign a mess, and fresh intelligence that the Germans were preparing for another move on the continent, and a political crisis of leadership brewing back home. British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain grew concerned about the overextension of the Royal Navy, and made plans with his French counterpart to withdraw from Norway to save their strength for another fight. On May 10, 1940, the German army proved the British intelligence good and struck again, this time in France. Less than two weeks later, the Royal Navy evacuated their soldiers from Norway to focus on the larger issue. In France, the news for the Allies was appalling. Just days into the German tank assault through the supposedly unpassable Ardennes forest along the French-German border, the horribly managed French army was on the verge of collapse. 500,000 French, British, and Belgian soldiers were trapped along the French coast, centered on a small, 
and soon-to-be-famous port of Dunkirk. By this time, Winston Churchill had been appointed the British Prime Minister and had one order for the Royal Navy's home fleet. Rescue the Army. And under the command of Vice Admiral Ramsey, the Royal Navy did just that. There's a myth in the popular imagination that the British Army was rescued by a sort of citizen navy of fishing boats and pleasure yachts. But I'm sorry to have to disabuse you of the romantic idea and report that the overwhelming majority of the evacuations were the work of transport ships and Royal Navy destroyers. Admiral Ramsey's first order was to recall all destroyers from Norway and the shipping lanes west of the British Isles. Dozens of destroyers raced at flank speed for the English Channel. The evacuation began on May 26th, just 16 days after the invasion of France. The German Luftwaffe had destroyed the piers and wharves of Dunkirk from the air, and so the evacuation had to take place from the beach. Even the shallow-drafted destroyers could get no closer than 600 yards from the shore, and so the soldiers trapped by the encircling German army had to be ferried to the destroyers one ore-powered boatload at a time, while their destroyers waited just offshore keeping a lookout for German dive bombers or fighters spraying machine gun fire into loading or unloading boats. There were, of course, thousands of men saved by small civilian craft. From Dutch canal barges to racing yachts to lifeguard motorboats, every available seaworthy vessel which could be commandeered was. These deputized boats were commanded by recalled Royal Navy officers and men, and sometimes by civilians who either volunteered or who were convinced to do their patriotic duty among the artillery shells and bombs of the beach at the pointy end of a bayonet. Two wooden breakwaters served as a makeshift pier and hosted a more than two-mile, six-hour-long line of soldiers awaiting evacuation, which had to be terrifying knowing that you were a ripe target for enemy aircraft. On May 28th, the Belgian army capitulated and the German armored columns again race for the exposed British army. The British contracted their perimeter and Ramsey was given command of every destroyer the Royal Navy possessed to evacuate the bulk of the British army before it was overrun by the vastly superior Germans. It was a race against time and if the British army were captured, it could mean the end of the war. While the German army raced to destroy the trapped British, the German navy also took its toll. The harrowing ordeal to get loaded onto a destroyer did not guarantee safe passage to English soil. The Germans had wasted their surface fleet in the Norwegian campaign, but attacks from the air, by U-boats, and by small, fast-attack craft operating under cover of night sunk or crippled 25 of the 39 British destroyers involved in the action. The losses were so horrendous that the first Sea Lord, the most senior officer in the Royal Navy, intervened to pull the destroyers out of action in order to save something in reserve to deflect the expected German invasion before he was eventually convinced by Vice Admiral Ramsey to reverse his decision. In the end, 340,000 men were evacuated from the Dunkirk pocket, but the operation was not a victory, just a mitigation of total defeat. All of the British Army's heavy equipment was abandoned to the Germans. In hindsight, it is easy to classify the evacuation as a miracle, but if you think back to how the world stage looked at the time, it was grim. The French army, whose fathers had so heroically held off the German horde for four years in the First World War, was falling. The British army had just retreated in abject defeat. Italy joined the war on the German side. France formally capitulated on July 22nd, and fascism looked absolutely ascendant in Europe. The naval situation was at an inflection point as well. German Admiral Donitz's U-boats were now operating from French ports in the Atlantic, and the newly allied Italian Navy was formidable. And the question of the fate of the French Navy, the fourth largest in the world, was in the balance. In part, Hitler hoped, to prevent the French fleet from joining the British. Part of France was allowed to exist as a neutral puppet state. Upon French surrender, a few captains took it into their own hands to sail their warships for England, while most of the others made their way for French colonial ports in Africa. Despite French promises that they would never allow their fleet to fall into German or Italian hands, the possibility that the French Navy, under the command of a puppet state, 
could be turned against the Royal Navy was an unacceptable risk to Churchill. The destruction of the German surface fleet off the coast of Norway allowed Churchill to dispatch a powerful squadron to the Mediterranean to begin Operation Catapult, which would present the remaining French fleet with a choice. Surrender to us, scuttle yourselves, or die. There was no time to stand on diplomatic fig leaves and niceties in Churchill's Britain, not when the empire's control of the sea was at stake. Some of the French fleet did surrender to British command, while others refused on the grounds that they were the sovereign warships of an admittedly humbled France. The British called their bluff and attacked the French fleet in the harbor of Mirz al-Kabir, off the coast of French Algeria, sinking a French battleship and damaging two others. Simultaneously, British aircraft attacked French warships in West Africa, and British Marines boarded and seized French warships which had voluntarily steamed into English ports after the fall of France. The French government and what remained of her navy was furious and retaliated in a series of skirmishes against British ships in the Mediterranean and by bombing Gibraltar before a truce emerged between the two powers. Two years later, the French would scuttle their 73 remaining warships rather than allow the Germans to seize them after the German army overran Vichy, France in 1942. With the French taken care of, the Royal Navy turned its attention to the Italian Navy, known as the Regia Marina. The Regia Marina alone was no match for the Royal Navy, but inside of the Mediterranean, they could supplement their navy with air power projected from the Italian homeland and conquered Libya. With the Italians in the war, the fight on land for control of North Africa also began. If the Axis powers of Germany and Italy could take the Suez Canal and force British convoys to take the long way from Asia around the Cape of Good Hope before reaching England, it would be as good as sinking thousands of convoys. And here is the first taste of the defining fight of the war. And of course, by that, I mean logistics. Yep, logistics. Not as dramatic as a battle, but there's no getting around the fact that modern war runs on stuff. And if your soldiers don't have their guns, ammunition, food, fuel, replacement parts, mail, and the thousands of other things that make modern war work, you're going to get absolutely mopped up by the side which does have all of these things. And during the Axis advance in North Africa, each side faced logistical nightmare of supplying an army through a contested Mediterranean Sea. The British edge in aircraft carriers and radar allowed them to launch raids on Italian naval bases, which the Italians could not match, including the world's first all-aircraft ship-to-ship naval attack, where 21 biplane torpedo bombers from the aircraft carrier HMS Illustrious disabled three Italian battleships and five smaller ships in the raid at Taranto. This raid was minuscule by the standards of the later Pacific War, but it was revolutionary in the history of naval warfare. The Japanese studied the raid closely when they were planning their surprise attack at Pearl Harbor a little more than a year later. And in the words of the British commander in charge of the raid, the 21 planes in the raid inflicted more damage upon the Italian fleet than was inflicted on the German high seas fleet at Jutland. After that, the Italians still had quite a fleet on paper, but it turned out to be a fairly hapless thorn in the side of the Royal Navy's Mediterranean mission and would not truly contest the Royal Navy for dominance of the Mediterranean again after the Taranto raid. And here, I want to make a brief digression into one of, if not the greatest amphibious operations in history that never happened, the invasion of England from conquered France. At just 20 miles across at its narrowest, the Germans did not need a large surface navy to launch this assault, which was fortunate because the navy they did have had been largely frittered away in Norway. But for such a short distance, if the Luftwaffe could gain total air superiority over the English Channel, the hundreds of assembled transport ships and thousands of motor barges assembled on the beaches of France could transport the nearly unstoppable German army across the Channel and into a defenseless England. There's been a lot of bad history floating around the popular imagination in the internet about how close Britain came to falling. The British public lived in fear for a few months. But between massively increasing British aircraft production, 
stupid strategic choices directed personally by Hitler to bomb the civilian population instead of military targets, and a couple of other factors. A successful invasion was not realistically on the table. And really, thank goodness, because the world would probably be a very different and worse off place today had the invasion happened. So if at this point, you're wondering something along the lines of, hey, I thought this was the U.S. Naval History Podcast. Where's the United States? You're probably not alone. And here it is. Even before Pearl Harbor, where the U.S. involvement begins, the Battle of the Atlantic. In this battle, there was no single big clash, no coming together of battle fleets. But nonetheless, it was one of the most important battles of the war. It can almost be thought of as a war within a war and began just days after Britain declared war on Germany and lasted all the way through 1945 when Germany surrendered. The stakes of the Battle of the Atlantic, especially between 1940 and early 1943, were no less than the fate of the free world because Britain needed to import more than a million tons of material each week in order to survive and carry on the fight against fascism. Leading the German side on this fight was Admiral Donitz, the commander of the U-boat fleet. Donitz carried out what he called the Tonnage War against Allied shipping, in which he tried to sink as many enemy ships, regardless of where in the world they were, at the least cost to his U-boat fleet. After the fall of France, Donitz personally inspected and picked out the best French ports to house his U-boat fleet, which gave the Germans an advantage they never had in World War I. Direct, shorter access to the Atlantic hunting grounds around the British Isles without having to skirt through the perilous English Channel or around the northern tip of Scotland. Under Donitz, the German U-boat force deployed new tactics as well as new technology. Instead of sending his submarines out as individual hunters, the U-boats deployed in operational groups known as wolf packs. A wolf pack would spread out in a long line along the projected course of a convoy crossing the Atlantic. And when one submarine spotted the convoy, the entire pack would converge and attack. This tactic was a game changer early in the Battle of the Atlantic, and many convoys were virtually wiped out by massed U-boat attacks. By late 1940, British merchant shipping was being sunk faster than the ships could be replaced. French air bases were also being used as takeoff points for long-range German surveillance aircraft, which provided targeting information to German U-boat fleets. This program was astoundingly successful while it lasted. But aircraft shortages, and more significantly, the intense and stupid inter-service rivalry on the part of the German Luftwaffe's commander, Hermann Göring, prevented the effective cooperation and saved countless lives and Allied ships. Using a torpedo design from a captured British submarine, the German Navy partially fixed their chronically horrible detonation problems. At the same time, Admiral Donitz convinced Hitler that the German Navy had to go all in on submarine construction, but he still struggled to requisition the workers and materials to produce enough U-boats to really strangle Britain. At the same time, Admiral Donitz convinced Hitler that the German Navy had to go all in on submarine construction but he still struggled to requisition the workers and materials to produce enough U-boats to fully strangle the British. But even with their limited numbers, the German U-boats were racking up wins against the practically defenseless convoys. In June of 1940, Prinz U-47 alone sank seven merchant ships in a grand follow-up performance after its invasion of Scapa Flow in the first weeks of the war. This easy hunting became known as the happy time by German U-boat sailors. But the pace of operations could not be maintained, and the small fleet of U-boats available meant that only a small percentage of available shipping was ever intercepted and sunk. The British counter to the U-boat menace was to rely on the convoy system. The Royal Navy had been using a version of the convoy system in dangerous waters for hundreds of years. But just like during World War I, the British Admiralty was at first reluctant to stack up a bunch of targets in the same place. After relearning the lessons of the last war, the Royal Navy ordered convoys of 20 to 50 merchant ships guarded by small, armed escort ships such as destroyers. Like their German submarine counterparts, these escort forces were stretched far too thin to do the required job, 
especially after the losses of the Norwegian and Dunkirk campaigns. To make up for the critical lack of proper escorts, the British slapped together a force of new, slow, and very lightly armed and totally unarmored corvettes. These corvettes would be totally useless against a proper warship, but were cheap, fast to build, and came equipped with depth charges and sonar. Churchill called them cheap and nasties, and they did a good enough job against German submarines for a navy hard-pressed to keep the motherland fed. But even these corvettes were not enough. U-boat captains were national heroes in Germany, and Winston Churchill would later write, The only thing which ever frightened me during the war was the U-boat peril. The Germans were cranking out submarines, and as the Battle of the Atlantic dragged on, the resources and wastelines of Britain were getting thinner and thinner. For escort reinforcements, Churchill turned to America. The United States had 120 mothballed World War I-era destroyers, moored and doing nothing but slowly rusting away, awaiting a national emergency and recall to active service. Churchill practically begged Roosevelt for these antiquated ships and called it a matter of life and death. Roosevelt was far ahead of the isolationist American public and Congress in his support for Britain against the rising tide of fascism. and eventually did an end run around Congress to instruct the so-called Basis for Destroyers deal in September of 1940, in which we turned over 50 of these mothballed World War I-era destroyers to Britain in exchange for a 99-year basing rights on various British colonial possessions in the Western Hemisphere. These badly needed escorts, and along with the vicious sea conditions in the North Atlantic holding back the U-boat force, Britain's badly strained convoy lifeline survived its most crucial months. And now, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit about the most famous single sea engagement of the European war, the cruise of the Bismarck. The Bismarck was the most powerful battleship in the world when she sailed, and on May 19, 1941, the Bismarck and her smaller escorts began their fateful cruise. British intelligence got word of the Bismarck's sailing and scrambled the home fleet to find and prevent her from spreading a trail of sinking and burning convoys in her wake. Anticipating the likely path of the Bismarck, a British force spotted the grey hull of the Bismarck off the coast of Iceland. In the dawn light of a northern morning on May 24th, the intercepting British force of the battlecruiser Hood and battleship Prince of Wales steamed directly at the Bismarck and her escorts and opened fire. As the ships closed, the Bismarck brought her massive guns to bear on the HMS Hood, fired, and on the sixth salvo, hit her and blew her in half as secondary explosions ripped apart the Hood's hull. A German officer described seeing a mountain of flame and yellowish-white fireballs bursting up between her masts and soaring into the sky. White stars, probably molten pieces of metal, shot out from the black smoke and followed the flame, and huge fragments, one of which looked like the main turret, whirled through the air like toys. In less than a minute, the largest ship and pride of the British fleet was gone, along with all but three of her 1,500 sailor crew. Turning her guns next to the brand new Prince of Wales, the Bismarck took just a few minutes to cripple her with repeated, devastating hits. The Prince of Wales captains laid down a smokescreen and ran. In a stunningly literal and stupid adherence to orders, the Bismarck's captain did not give chase and take the easy win of sinking Britain's newest battleship to instead pursue his cruise's goal of sinking British shipping much to the disbelief of basically every sailor and officer under his command. But here, the German captain faced a choice. The Bismarck had been lightly damaged in the fight against the Prince of Wales, but two of the Prince's shells had caused leaks in the fuel compartments, which limited the range of his ship, and so her captain split his forces. He sent the Bismarck's escort to a prearranged rendezvous location with waiting supply ships, and turned the Bismarck south for occupied French ports, where he hoped he could make quick repairs, refuel, and then head back out to sea. But the cruise to safety would not be easy. Two British cruisers joined the Prince of Wales in tailing the Bismarck south while reporting her position to the British Admiralty, which coordinated a mass convergence of forces to sink the solitary Bismarck at any cost before she could reach 
the safety of German air cover off the French coast. Among the assets sent to sink the Bismarck was the Royal Navy's newest aircraft carrier, HMS Victorious, which had only been commissioned two weeks earlier. She was so new, in fact, that her pilots were complete rookies and only completed one or two carrier landings each. Late at night, rookies or not, all nine Swordfish torpedo bombers launched from the Victorious. Just before midnight, the bombers found the Bismarck and began their attack run. The Bismarck responded with every gun she had. Tracers lit up the sky and huge gouts of water splashed up as the Bismarck's main guns fired shells into the water ahead of the slow-moving biplanes. The rookie pilots held their course and dropped their torpedoes before pulling up. The Bismarck maneuvered wildly to avoid the incoming torpedo wakes. One torpedo did hit the thickly armored torpedo belt meant to protect against just this sort of attack. The Bismarck shuddered, but it did no real damage. Happy as he was that he avoided damage, the aerial attack concerned the commanding officer of the Bismarck. It would take 48 more hours to reach safe waters, and there were at least two battle groups close by. Although he didn't know it, and although he didn't know it, the Bismarck was actually at the center of a converging fleet of four battleships, two battle cruisers, two aircraft carriers, and 34 other ships. The next day, the British pursuing forces launched a second aerial attack on the Bismarck, this time from the HMS Ark Royal, attacking in groups of three, again against literally everything the madly maneuvering Bismarck could throw their way. This time, the British attack scored two hits. One was against the armor belt where it again did nothing, but the second hit was decisive. Near the ship's less heavily armored starboard quarter, which ripped open the Bismarck to the sea, flooded an engine room, and jammed the rudders to starboard. The Bismarck began to circle out of control counterclockwise. Just 400 miles from safety, he was powerless to make his way towards France. Receiving reports that the Bismarck was crippled, the British commander decided to wait for reinforcements before taking on the still dangerous ship. By dawn the next day, he was ready and attacked. It was a pretty lopsided fight. The Bismarck's gunners had to constantly adjust their firing as the Bismarck circled endlessly on a fixed point, and by late morning, the Bismarck had been hit more than 400 times, and yet she still floated with a skeleton crew and her battle flag waving. Finally, a torpedo barrage by a British cruiser finished the Bismarck off, and she slowly sank into the Atlantic, unsinkable no more. This was the true final straw for the fate of the German surface navy. Hitler the ultimate decider of military policy in Germany, had lost all faith in the surface fleet and never permitted another surface excursion into the North Atlantic. By then, of course, he'd abandoned any hope of British invasion and instead was massing his forces to the east for the largest military operation in human history, the four-million-man offensive against the Soviet Union, which would shape the fate of the world one way or another. In the Atlantic, the American Navy was slowly beginning to expand its duties. The Germans were cranking out submarines, and the Battle of the Atlantic was just dragging on. Both the resources and the waistlines of the British were getting thinner and thinner. Gradually, the still officially neutral United States adopted a less and less neutral role in protecting Atlantic convoys heading for a besieged Britain. By the summer of 1941, the United States had taken over the occupation of Iceland from Britain and was escorting British-bound convoys as far as 200 miles east of Iceland. Although they were called patrols, when a reporter asked President Roosevelt at a press briefing, Mr. President, can you tell us the difference between a patrol and a convoy? There was no good answer because, well, these patrols were convoys in all but name. The legality of these order patrols straddled the line somewhere between deeply gray and blatantly illegal, but Roosevelt had found in Admiral Ernest King, an Atlantic fleet commander, who believed, like he did, that American security was tied up in Britain's. King had messaged his captains that while America was not at war, we are, quote, no longer in a peacetime status. Soon, the United States Navy was fighting an undeclared, 
low-grade shooting war against the German U-boat menace. Prior to our formal entrance in World War I, three American destroyers had been hit by German torpedoes, and one of the destroyers, the USS Reuben James, was sunk. Two months after the Reuben James was sunk, on December 7, 1941, the Imperial Japanese Navy struck at Pearl Harbor. Four days later, Germany declared war on the United States, and the full weight of the United States Navy and industry entered into the war and the Battle of the Atlantic. The immediate effect was that the U-boat hunting ground expanded to our eastern seaboard and the second happy time in German submarine lore before our coastal cities implemented blackouts to protect ships from being silhouetted by city lights and before merchant captains figured out that running lights made them prime targets during wartime meant that our losses were so bad in the opening months that they were hidden from the press until a full-fledged coastal convoy system could be established, which again brought down our losses to a manageable level. And here, I want to take another break and tell you about one of the more interesting and important stories of World War II, and especially in regard to the Battle of the Atlantic. This is the story of the Enigma machine. The Enigma machine was an encoding and decoding device that was eventually adopted by all branches of the World War II-era German military. The machine itself looked sort of like a typewriter in a wooden box, with keys that, when pressed, went through a series of electromechanical rotor mechanisms, which eventually energized the light behind a pseudo-random letter on a sort of display board above the keys. A second operator would write down the pseudo-random letter, and once the whole message had been encrypted, it would be sent off, and then decrypted by another Enigma machine, which had the same prearranged settings. The military-grade Enigma machines had 16 quintillion, that's 160 followed by 18 zeros, possible outcomes, making it very, 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 very hard to crack the code and decipher the coded information if you didn't know the encryption and decryption settings for the Enigma machine, which changed every day. On top of this, the German military, and especially the Navy, layered some other security features, all of which meant that the Enigma machine was the gold standard for cryptography at the time. But, if you're an astute listener, you'll notice that the code was not random, but rather pseudo-random. And this was the weakness of the Enigma machine. The story of how the Allies broke the Enigma code is one of the most consequential of World War II. The story starts with the Polish mathematician Marian Rzewski, who managed to break the first layer of secrecy on an early commercial version of the Enigma machine for Polish intelligence in the 1920s. In 1939, the Poles shared their discovery with the British, whose team of genius codebreakers included Alan Turing at Bletchley Park. It was quickly apparent that to break the Enigma code, an intact, military-grade Enigma machine was vital. British commandos targeted and boarded German ships with Enigma machines on board in an attempt to retrieve a machine, or at least parts of it, intact. The German captains knew this and had an annoying habit of throwing their machines overboard, but slowly, spare parts and codebooks recovered were helping the codebreakers at Bletchley Park make progress. The real breakthrough came from the capture of U-110 off Greenland by the British destroyer HMS Bulldog on May 9, 1941, when the crew of the Bulldog managed to save the damaged U-110 from the scuttling action of her crew and retrieve an intact Enigma machine before the submarine sank. With an intact Enigma machine, the British team at Bletchley Park began cracking the German codes using early computers, which happened to be really good at doing a lot of operations very quickly. Say, 160 quadrillion of them. By the summer of 1941, the British were able to decode German messages within 36 hours of interception. The fact that the codes were broken was the most sensitive information the British possessed, and the information gleaned from these and other broken codes was guarded at a whole new, above-top-secret classification level called Ultra. What would the Germans think if we destroy their U-boats? Nothing. They'll be dead. No. 
No, you can't be right. So our convoy suddenly veers off course. A squadron of RAF bombers miraculously descends on the coordinates of the U-boats. What will the Germans think? The Germans will know that we have broken Enigma. They'll stop all radio communications by midday, and they'll have changed the design of Enigma by the weekend. Yes. Two years' work. Everything that we've done here, it'll all be for nothing. There are 500 civilians in that convoy. Women. Children. We're about to let them die. Our job is not to save one passenger convoy, it is to win the war. When ultra-intelligence was deciphered, there was a complex decision which had to be made. To act on every piece of intelligence would tip the Germans off that their codes had been broken, and the Germans would change their codes. And so, the British acted on just a small percentage of the intelligence they gleaned from the ultra-code breaking, and attributed these breakthroughs throughout the war to a fictitious spy high in the German command. Some convoys were rerouted away from the waiting German wolf packs in the Atlantic, while others were allowed to steam into the jaws of destruction. The Enigma machine saved many thousands of lives and earned its designation as decisive from General Eisenhower, the Supreme Allied Commander. But I tend to doubt the popular history assertion that it shortened the war by two years. Even if the Germans had realized their codes were broken, and they almost did several times, and changed all of their codes in an unbreakable way, the Allies still would have achieved air dominance over Germany, and still would have developed the atomic bomb first, and if it came to it, dropped atomic bombs on German cities to end the war. At the end of World War II, the American and British secrecy around the broken Enigma machines was so great that countries continued to buy Enigma machines for 20 years afterwards, believing that their security was perfect, much to the joy of British and American intelligence services who treated this as a free lunch. The Battle of the Atlantic would continue throughout the war, but as escorts grew more plentiful and British and American submarine detection and destruction technology improved, the tide slowly turned in our favor. By May of 1943, the North Atlantic convoys were so well defended that Admiral Donitz abandoned the theater altogether, finally leaving the Allies a free, and clear shipping path between the factories of America and the battlefields of Europe. In American dockyards, shipbuilding had settled onto a standardized model, which allowed around-the-clock mass production of more than a million tons of shipping every month. On the Eastern Front, Stalin's Red Army managed to repulse the German war machine from the outskirts of Moscow, but the danger of Soviet collapse was still not over. Without the Soviet millions to absorb the brunt of the fighting, it would be an order of magnitude harder, if not practically impossible, to launch an eventual invasion of mainland Europe. To assuage both Stalin and the American public, who were impatient for a strike back against the Germans, a second front was badly needed against the fascist powers of Europe. But preferably not a full-on assault into a World War I-style meat grinder before the American army was operationally ready and the naval blockade and unrelenting aerial bombing had softened the Germans up. This first probe against the German might was codenamed Operation Torch. Operation Torch was the joint British-American invasion of North Africa, and the first battle was for transports. The Battle of Guadalcanal was raging in the Pacific at the time, and the logistical demands to supply the Marines on that remote island meant that there was literally not one spare transport ship in the Allied arsenal. Under the command of General Dwight Eisenhower, the Allies scraped the bottom of every barrel and then took these barrels apart to make rafts to transport the equipment to North Africa. From the scraped-together fleet of convoys, the first of more than 100,000 Allied soldiers landed on what was still officially neutral, French-controlled North Africa. These landings were not the D-Day-style opposed landings or brutal beach assaults against dug-in Japanese forces that I'll tell you about in the next two World War II episodes. But that was a pretty lucky break for the Allies. There were five main landing points spread out across several hundred miles of French North Africa. American troops landed unopposed on the Atlantic coast of French Morocco, 
amid heavy surf and chest-deep water. When soldiers scrambled out of their makeshift boats, many were knocked off their feet by the rough waves, drowned in water that was only three or four feet deep, pulled down by their heavy gear while their friends searched for them in the white water, trying not to get knocked down themselves. Inside the Mediterranean, the French decided to defend themselves, as well as they could with their shore batteries and destroyers, which charged out of port against the much larger escort forces in a show of bravery that was worthy of a better cause. The French destroyers were inevitably sunk without doing much damage to the escorting warships, but the French did succeed in scuttling all of the transport ships in their harbors, depriving us allies of badly needed stock and blocking up the harbors for unloading operations. There was no real French army to oppose the landings, though, and two days later, on November 10th, 1942, French forces in North Africa surrendered and aligned themselves with Allied forces. The rest of the North Africa campaign was a back-and-forth slog between the Allies and our Axis foes, who were forced to inefficiently airlift supplies across the Strait of Sicily, since they lacked the sea control to reliably convoy even across the 90-mile-wide strait. Brutally constrained by the lack of supplies because Axis air power could not control the sea lanes. After a long winter and spring of fighting, more than 275,000 starving German and Italian soldiers surrendered, clearing the way, finally, for the invasion of the European mainland. After some wrangling, Sicily, the triangular island just southwest of the Italian mainland, was chosen as the target. 160,000 men, 14,000 vehicles, 600 tanks, 1,800 artillery pieces, food, fuel, mules, and ammunition all had to be carried by some 3,000 ships and landing boats in what proved to be, up until that time, the largest naval force ever assembled. There was no surface fleet opposition to speak of. The Regina Marina had been practically destroyed by that point, and what was left could barely get underway due to fuel shortages. German and Italian submarines did manage to do some damage to the assembled invasion force on the shores of North Africa, but the damage was nowhere near enough to derail the invasion and came at the cost of more than 13 sunk submarines against the well-escorted British, American, and Canadian invasion force. In the pre-dawn hours of July 9th, 1943, the invasion force began to land amid storms and delays. The landings went much more smoothly than the landings on North Africa almost a year ago, since flat-bottomed amphibious craft had been manufactured, which allowed troops, tanks, and supplies to be ferried right up to the beach. Still, this was no D-Day, Saving Private Ryan-style invasion. The Italian soldiers on the ground had essentially no will to fight and sometimes surrendered without firing a shot, while Italian civilians cheered when American tanks came into view. The hundreds of German aircraft stationed in the area, however, were a different story. Dive bombers sank Liberty ships and warships alike, but it was not enough to dent such an awesome invasion force. Throughout the first morning on the beaches, chaos ruled as thousands of tons of supplies were unloaded and Navy Beachmaster tried to get it all moving in the right direction. The 250,000 Axis soldiers stationed on the island planned to fight the Allies not from static positions on the beaches where the guns of the U.S. and Royal Navy could pound away at them, but from the mountainous interior of Sicily and launch a furious counterattack once the Allies revealed where the main thrust of their attack would go. This counterattack came the next morning when heavy German Tiger tanks rolled in from the interior of the island against an American force which had not unloaded most of its tanks yet and whose anti-tank guns had been largely lost when the ship they were loaded on had been sunk by German aircraft the previous day. The report from the front line to the 1st Division HQ put it simply, Situation critical. We're being overrun by tanks. It was the Navy that saved the day. As the German tanks cut through Allied lines and threatened to drive tens of thousands of troops into the sea, what we call today Naval Surface Fire Support, or NSFS, saved the day. Utilizing both direct fire, which is shooting at targets that the ships had in their line of sight, and indirect fire, which is shooting at targets beyond the line of sight, NSFS was devastatingly effective compared to earlier eras for a couple of reasons. The first was that the newfangled invention called radar proved its worth yet again 
by allowing ships track their individual rounds as they flew through the air and adjust their firing as necessary. We also had accurate charts and radios, which allowed ground-based Army radiomen to call in locations and accuracy of landing rounds, all of which combined with the ship's course and speed could be fed into a rudimentary computer and used to adjust the fire control director. The end result was that destroyers and cruisers closed in as close to the beach as they could and lobbed tens of thousands of accurate shells into German tank divisions and airburst rounds above infantry components. It was death from above on a scale that aircraft could not have been able to match. By early afternoon, our tanks were finally rolling off their transports onto the beaches and directly into battle only a few miles offshore against their German counterparts. In the German war histories, they squarely recognized that it was naval gunfire which forced their retreat. These scenes repeated themselves time and time again as the American army raced the British army to capture most of the island, conducting secondary landings to leapfrog resistance. The German army pretty quickly hightailed it out of Sicily to prevent being trapped, and the Italian soldiers pretty happily surrendered en masse. Less than three weeks after the invasion began, the Italian Fascist Grand Council of Rome passed a vote of no confidence against Mussolini. The king removed him from office and placed Mussolini under arrest, which effectively ended the Italian role in the war. Italy formally surrendered on September 3rd. The remnants of their fleet sailed for Allied ports to keep it from the Germans, who were just hours too slow to seize it when they heard the bad news. And the rest of the Italian campaign was bogged down in the much more difficult campaign for northern and central parts of now German-occupied Italian homeland. The stalemated Italian front's bigger impact on the war was not a contribution to the Allied cause, or the German soldiers it tied up, but rather the badly needed Allied amphibious craft it tied up. General Eisenhower had by this point relocated to England to oversee the main Allied thrusts into Europe, and the combination of the Pacific War, which in his view was absorbing far too many precious landing craft, and the demand of the Mediterranean theater, pushed back the start date for the planned invasion again and again. There were just not enough landing craft to go around, and a small invasion force assaulting the German Atlantic Wall was not going to cut it. All of this has been, of course, leading up to the final assault on France, the largest amphibious assault of the European war, and the relief that the Red Army had been looking for. Yes, it came two years too late, and yes, barring major unforeseen circumstances, the Red Army was solidly on the offensive across the entire Eastern Front by this point in World War II. But we were coming, gosh darn it. At this point, Stalin would rather we had just kept sending him tanks and bombing the heck out of Germany and not opened up a second front against the Germans in France. But we had no intention of letting Uncle Joe Stalin, who by now it was clear had in mind an extensive post-war European empire of his own, take all of Germany and France. And so, Operation Overlord was a go. Finally, on May 28, 1944, order went out to all Western Allied commands, thousands of ships and landing craft put out to sea, Battleships and cruisers got underway to provide naval gunfire support mission, and miles-long columns of trucks carrying soldiers in full kit snaked from bases across South England towards the coast. Every amphibious assault ship's load had been carefully planned out, and quartermasters checked off every crate, gun, and man who entered. When the craft was full, it pulled off from the pier and was replaced by another empty landing craft. The loading process went on around the clock, at 171 embarkation sites for five straight days. June 5th, 1944, D-Day. Well, sorta. Weather was rough that day, and waves were breaking over the top of some of the landing craft, soaking the seasick soldiers inside. Eisenhower chose to call the invasion off with the order to all units, one Mike post. More than 2,000 vessels already underway returned to port. With the meteorologist promising better weather the next day, Eisenhower gave the go-ahead for June 6, 1944, the D-Day we all know and love. A mere one hour of extremely intense naval gunfire presaged the invasion, not to give the Germans too much heads up as to which of the beaches the invasion would land on. The shells continued to land until seconds before the army disembarked from their thousands of landing craft. To tell the whole story of D-Day, 
It's a whole podcast series in and of itself. And so I'm going to abdicate most of the story to your own curiosity and research. But I will tell you the story of Omaha Beach, a five-mile stretch of French coastline defended by hardened German bunkers, extra German troops who have been coincidentally sent to the beach for training that day, and today, the site of 9,388 American soldiers who lay in rest in the Normandy American Cemetery. The ramps dropped, Navy coxswains yelled, Everybody out! And soldiers burdened with 60 pounds of kit and a 9-pound rifle surged out into the water against German guns. There was no retreat from this whirlwind of violence. The Germans' defenses had not been knocked out by aerial bombardment and naval gunfire, and amphibious craft were being shelled by German artillery. There was no retreat. It was advance up the beach and kill the Germans, or die on that beach. The attack on Omaha Beach had stalled, and time was just not on the side of the thousands of American soldiers occupying a slice of French coastline just yards deep. It was destroyers that saved the day. Faced with the emergency at Omaha Beach, destroyers were pulled from their submarine guard duty and directed to lay down gunfire support into German pillboxes from as close range as they could get without grounding themselves. A general order from Admiral Bryant to all nearby destroyers was, Get on them, men! Get on them! They're raising hell out there with the men on the beach, but we can't have that anymore. We must stop it. And we, the Navy that is, did. U.S. Destroyer Squadron 18, joined by a few Royal Navy destroyers, squeezed every knot out of their small ships and took up positions 800 to 1,000 yards from the beach, with less than a foot of water beneath their keels and close enough to be dinged by rifle bullets. The destroyers fired off more than 1,000 rounds each over the next hour and a half, at such a rate that the spent brass cartridges mounded up around the guns and fire teams sprayed down the glowing red barrels with fire hoses to prevent them from melting. Slowly, 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 trapped men at Omaha Beach began to climb the cliffs and advance beyond the beachhead. Hundreds of bodies littered the shore and rose and fell with the waves and tides over the next couple of days as a major logistical operation got underway. More than 132,000 men were put ashore on June 6th alone. But now, they had to be continually supplied, as did the hundreds of thousands and eventually millions who would follow in subsequent waves. To do this, the Allies seized the major English Channel port of Cherbourg, and after the retreating Germans sabotaged the port as expected, two huge artificial harbors were constructed on Omaha and Gold Beaches to supply the millions of tons of war material the army demanded on a daily basis to sustain the fight against the German army. It took only one month to land a million soldiers on French shores. General Patton took command of the Third Army and began his dash to Paris. In the middle of August, a second landing in southern France along the French Riviera opened up yet another front that the badly outstretched Germans had to deal with. If it was not clear by now, the Germans had no hope of winning a military victory. It was just a matter of how many dead it would take to prove the point, and if the Soviets or the Western Allies would get more of the spoils. The Navy's part for the rest of the European war was to guard the flow of supplies and occasionally provide fire support when the Germans chose to fight on the coastline. There were still a few German submarines to deal with, but the Battle of the Atlantic was won. In all, Germany sank more than 2,700 Allied and neutral merchant ships, and 80,000 civilian seamen and sailors were claimed by the waves. On their own side, the Germans lost 761 of their 1,071 U-boats they commissioned, and 70% of the 41,000 crew who served aboard one of Germany's underseas raiders died. I hope you've enjoyed this first part of the U.S. Naval History Podcast's World War II coverage. I have two episodes lined up for the Pacific part of the war, and the Pacific part of the war is far vaster. There are massive battles, dozens of blood-drenched beaches, and, and as important as the flow of supplies and a landing or two war for the course of the war, from a naval perspective, World War II in the Pacific is just a hundred times more interesting. And so please do join me for the next two episodes coming out in the next two weeks about World War II in the Pacific. And so please do join me for the next two episodes coming out in the next two weeks about World War II in the Pacific and help spread the word about the podcast. There are a lot of World War II history buffs out there 
which might enjoy these episodes. And as always, rate, subscribe, and feel free to follow me on Twitter or Instagram at US Navy Podcast or email me at US Naval History Podcast at gmail.com. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. the world, throngs of people hail the end of the war in Europe. It is five years and more since Hitler marched into Poland. Years full of suffering and death and sacrifice. Now the war against Germany is won. A grateful nation gives thanks for victory. Hundreds of thousands crowd into American churches to give thanks to God.